I arrived in Mexico City in December 2019. I had just quit my job at a big law firm in Washington, D.C., and left the law after over a decade of toil. I had no idea what to do next, but I knew I needed to escape. As a former debating nerd with a painfully extroverted personality, sitting alone in an office all day and quietly reviewing documents just wasn't for me. So instead of doing the practical thing, speaking to a career counsellor and sprucing up my resume, my husband Kieran and I booked a one-way ticket to Mexico. When we landed in Mexico City, we were completely lost. We couldn't speak a word of Spanish and had no job prospects, friends or connections. But there was something intoxicating about this place. There was the obvious. The food. Spicy enough for even my snobby Indian palate. The warmth of the people, always looking for the next fiesta. And music so joyful that even Kieran's hips started moving involuntarily. But as any Mexican will tell you, the country is more than just tacos and mariachi bands. Mexico is a complex, diverse, and sometimes contradictory country. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to find out. I'm Nita Rao, and this is Lost in Mexico, a podcast about my journey to understand Mexico through conversations with Mexicans. I started this podcast for the same reasons that most people start podcasts during quarantine, Extreme boredom and a desperate need for a project. But the main reason is that having lived in the US for four years, pretty much everything I heard about Mexico involved narcos or the border wall. In other words, what Trump thinks of Mexico. I wanted to know what Mexicans think of Mexico. And not just that. Ordinary Mexicans. People who might not get quoted on CNN, but who can reveal something distinctive about their lives in this country. Each episode, I'll be taking you on my journey as I learn something new about this country's politics, music, food, sport, and history. This is Lost in Mexico. Before COVID, our lives were the opposite of socially distanced. We rented a small apartment in Mexico City, a city of 21 million people, which is not somewhere you'd go if you want physical separation. Mexico City is the kind of place where you're always jostling for position. From ordering a taco at a crowded street stall to pushing through the scrum of people fighting to get into a nightclub. Like lots of people in Mexico City, we were concerned about the new coronavirus but weren't doing much differently. We were still taking salsa classes, which was embarrassing for all concerned, and eating anything we could get our hands on. In March... Mexico's colourful president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, was still kissing babies at rallies and scoffing at social distancing. You have to hug, he said. Nothing is going to happen. Since March, things have changed, dramatically. Mexico City has been in lockdown for nearly two months. All non-essential businesses have closed, and everyone is wearing masks in public, at least in theory. Kieran and I flirted with going home to Australia, but ultimately chose a tiny Mexican apartment over quarantining with my anxious Indian parents. And for a while, that seemed like a good decision. On April 26, President AMLO boasted that Mexico, unlike other countries, had tamed the pandemic. 
But since then, things have gotten really bad. Mexico now has more coronavirus deaths than China. And on the day I record this podcast, there was a record number of new cases. Mexico City is the epicenter of the pandemic in Mexico, and there have been reports in the foreign press that it is substantially undercounting the number of deaths. But despite these terrible statistics, some parts of the country have already reopened, and Mexico City is heading in the same direction. I asked Esteban Iades, weekly op-ed columnist for the El Universal newspaper, what he thought about the plans to reopen. We don't really know for sure how many people have been infected because Mexico is not doing tests. So we don't really know for sure how many people have have been infected, how many people have died, and uh, what the current trend is. But uh, even though that is happening and the foreign media is actually lifting the lid on the issue and informing on this, uh, we're already talking about uh, reopening the economy. Uh, we're very skeptical about what this means and what's going to happen because we're not really sure, even though the government is saying we're reaching the high point of the epidemic, we're not sure if that's true or if the high point is still a long way ahead. So it's definitely very confusing. But at the same time, you also have to remember that Mexico is a very poor country, or at least a very unequal country, and uh, half of Mexican population can't afford to do a quarantine. So they live on a day-to-day basis. That is, they need to go out and work in order to get food. So if you keep the whole country locked up, half of the country doesn't really eat or doesn't really eat well. So it's a very difficult decision for the government. When Esteban said that half the Mexican population could not afford to quarantine, I was stunned. How could a lockdown possibly succeed if that many people needed to stay outside to survive? And was the government making the right call by reopening right now? To find out for myself, I grabbed my microphone, mask and walking shoes and headed to the streets of the capital. I started at the heart of Mexico City, the Plaza de la Constitución, also known as the Zócalo. Usually, the Zócalo is filled with hundreds of people, street vendors hawking trinkets, tourists gaping at the Metropolitan Cathedral, and police half-heartedly trying to keep order. When I arrived, however, the square was completely deserted and eerily quiet, like a scene in a post-apocalyptic movie. As I walked around the square, I noticed a group of 40 people sitting in front of one of the government buildings. They were dressed in red and green clothing and were closely bunched together. A row of bored police officers stood behind them, clearly indifferent to the violation of social distancing. I approached a woman in her 40s who looked like she wanted to talk. Margarita told me that she was an indigenous artisan, angry about the Mexico City government's lack of support for her people. We are here protesting because the government doesn't want to give us the help the head of state, Claudia Sheinbaum, promised to support all the indigenous people with a monetary help of 1,500 pesos. But until now, she hasn't supported us. They've come to talk to us several times to tell us they were finally helping us, but now they don't want to help us at all. Around a fifth of Mexico's 120 million people identify as indigenous. In Mexico City... Many of those people live in tents and don't have access to clean water, hand sanitizer or face masks. Given the level of vulnerability, I asked Margarita whether she was worried about coronavirus. 
We are not afraid of coronavirus, but we are afraid of dying from hunger. If we shut ourselves in our houses, we will die of hunger because we don't have money to buy food. And in that case, we are going to die for sure. We prefer to be fighting to get help so we can get by and give our children food. We all are indigenous people, artisans. We are not afraid. I think that's something psychological from people. I don't know if that actually does exist. I think that the coronavirus doesn't kill, but hunger does. I was surprised that Margarita doubted the existence of COVID. When we spoke, Mexico City had already been in lockdown for weeks. Thousands of people had been infected, and Indigenous communities had been struck particularly hard. Up until then, I had not met a single person that did not believe coronavirus was real, even though some people took it more seriously than others. But for Margarita, the risk of dying of coronavirus seemed much more remote than the risk of dying of hunger. I wanted to speak to other people who were ignoring the lockdown to see if they shared Margarita's view. On every block in Mexico City, there's a stand serving huaraches, tacos, gorditos or tamales, which I always douse in salsa verde in a desperate attempt to prove my Mexican credentials. I approached some vendors to see what they thought about the lockdown. This is Maria Cristina. She sells tacos on the corner of Avenida Insurgentes, one of the busiest streets in Mexico City. She told me that coronavirus had affected her business a little bit, but that lots of her customers didn't believe it was real, and others took precautions. She didn't seem worried at all. So Margarita didn't believe coronavirus was real, and Maria Cristina was completely relaxed about the threat. Was the government's message just not getting through? This is Amelia. She's been selling enchiladas and pozole for 15 years at the same intersection in Romasur. Amelia told me that she was struggling to find customers, but had to stay open to be able to feed her two children and granddaughter. We live day by day, and if we don't work, we don't eat. She was anxious about the situation, especially because the government was doing nothing to support street vendors like her. The government does nothing, at least not for people in our sector. There is no support. Emilia, unlike other people I interviewed, believed that the coronavirus existed and said that she preferred to stay home. But she did not know how exposed she was to getting the virus. There is a lot of uncertainty because, unfortunately, as the government always lies to us, we no longer know precisely whether to believe everything they tell us or not. So I'm quickly realizing that trust in government is a real problem in Mexico. Trust in the government's ability to provide reliable information about a global pandemic and trust that if something goes wrong, the government will be able to help people stay on their feet. Over 40% of Mexicans live in poverty, according to official government figures, and the country doesn't have universal unemployment insurance. Although President AMLO is an anti-poverty crusader who has promised to create a Nordic-style welfare state, he has ended cash transfer and healthcare programs targeted at the poorest Mexicans and replaced them with new programs with confusing eligibility requirements. Losing your job anywhere is a really big deal right now, but for street workers in Mexico, it can be an existential threat. That puts a pretty big burden on employers, knowing that laying off their workers could leave them destitute during a COVID outbreak that is devastating Mexico's economy, 
I spoke with Fran Aragon, a young restaurant owner who has been wrestling with the impossible decision of what to do with her staff. Fran started Sushin Gonzalez, a Mexican-Japanese fusion restaurant, in response to the growing number of American franchises in Mexico City. I, I wanted to do something different. And we actually, you know, had this opportunity to open a restaurant. There has been a lot of restaurants um, lately who come from, you know, outside of Mexico. Fran is referring to Olive Garden and Chili's. Even Mexico, a country with the most phenomenal food in the world, cannot escape the reach of mediocre American fast food. But we needed like something interesting that comes in the inside. So we started building Suchin Gonzalez, um, mostly like um, a way of expressing ourselves and expressing this vast majority of um, different things happening culturally in Mexico City. Because a couple of years ago, we didn't even have like people, you know, like you coming out from the outside and actually live in Mexico City. So we, we, we thought doing a fusion between different cultures will be something that will be really interesting. Fran's business eventually grew into five locations around Mexico City. But then COVID struck. So it's been a ride because, you know, from one week to the other, when this started, everything changed so fast. For what I really wanted, I wanted to close since day one, to be honest, but everyone was open. So, you know, that really impacted us in, in the numbers and on the, uh, on the marketing and everything that has to do with, with, with the brand. So I was like, okay, if, if everyone's open, then we have to stay open. I really hate about that. I really hate it, but it's something that we have to do. Fran tried a number of things, including reducing her operating hours, but money was tight. And eventually she had to close down some locations and switch completely to delivery. Fran stood up in front of her employees at a packed staff meeting. And I told them, I'm sorry, but with all that has been due, we are not going to be able to stay with you for a long time. Um, I'm afraid we have to let go a lot of you, which is really sad because this was not the intention of this company. This was not the intention when we opened this when we held this dream. So I'm really ashamed, I'm really sad. I'm really angry at the same time that we don't have a good economic political support. And at the same time, I was blaming myself. I told them that I really blame myself because I didn't plan properly. I knew what was happening in China, I knew what was happening in Italy, the same, I didn't plan properly. So I, di- I, I said that to them. I could see all those faces of despair, of fear, of sadness, of, you know, I like my job, I don't want to let go, uh, of what I'm going to eat tomorrow, of please help me, I don't know what I'm going to do. So tell me about the response. I mean, were people angry? Mostly they were really sad, you know, they're really sad and afraid of the future. And I completely understand that. So I think for them, it it must have been, you know, thinking about their families, thinking about what we're going to do, thinking about some of them, you know, have um, social security and now they don't have it. Uh, So that's another thing when it comes to fear. And, you know, a lot of people support their families. And we tried to give them two or three months of, of, um, of salary to to men for that, but I don't think it's enough. 
For Fran, one of the hardest things was knowing what could happen to her staff if they lost their jobs. The people were like my family and they were like people I've, I've meeting from three years, four years now. So the fact that they're probably going to get sick, I mean, at some point because they have to work and that must be, I mean, putting them in danger with, with getting sick. I'm totally the positive of that. Just like maybe cleaning houses or going to a farmer's market and just like doing a heavy weight, uh, uh, you know, labor. Fran still carries the burden of that decision. Someone who has a business, and what people don't understand is that you are the one who has all the responsibility, all the decision-making, and all the guilt from the decisions that you make, all the shame, all the fear. So that's something that you don't share with people, I mean, with, with, um, with employees or with suppliers, you don't share that. That's that's something that's just in your side. We still are in contact with these people and touch with these people in order to help them the best we can, but we cannot, and this is really sad, and this really brings me to tears, we cannot promise anything now. We cannot give hope to people. We cannot give anything to people for them to be or to feel Less, less fearful. So that really, that really breaks my heart all the time. So I set out to discover why the lockdown in Mexico City didn't seem to be working. COVID has a knack of exposing the underlying weaknesses of a society. In Mexico, like the United States, the virus has stripped bare the country's inequalities, forcing the most vulnerable people to stay on the streets to survive and forcing employers to choose between their businesses and protecting their workers. In the coming weeks, we'll look beyond COVID to some other interesting untold stories. I'm Nita Rao, and this is Lost in Mexico. Thank you for joining us for episode one. Special thanks to my executive producer, Kieran, and to marketing trio, Farah, Zara, and Dai, for helping an Instagram illiterate person promote this podcast. If you liked this episode, Please subscribe to the show in your podcast app to receive every episode automatically and follow us on Instagram at lostinmexico.podcast for more interesting stories about life in Mexico. We'd love to know what you thought about the episode. You can leave us a review through your podcast app or on iTunes. Next episode, I'll be talking to people who are trying in very different ways to fit into Mexican society and exploring the question, who gets to be Mexican? I'll see you then.